This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end. It's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Samson Folk, and today, a great writer, a friend of mine, and somebody who used to be with Raptors Republic, now a lead writer covering the Raptors for Yahoo Sports Canada, Vivek Jacob. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Um, thank you for the compliments. Very nice to hear that. Um, don't know if I stand on that spectrum of great writer yet. Um but that's what we're all striving for, so uh, I'll take it. Uh, well, that was last year when you, I would read your recaps that you would do before you transitioned over to Yahoo Sports Canada. I'd read the recaps you did, and I would think that they were so, they had so much information in them, and they also had the perfect amount of gifts to, or, to I guess, educate and orchestrate exactly what you were trying to say, and that the words mixed well with that, too, and it was just chock full of these nice little details and I try to emulate that in the recaps I do this year and last year as well after you moved on to Yahoo Sports Canada. And I just I thought that you, you've done a wonderful job writing, and especially with Yahoo Sports Canada as well this year, of course. And yeah, I think it's, it's well-deserved, man. I think you do great work. Oh, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, the, I, I really enjoyed doing those recaps uh, for Raptors Republic. And yeah, if I've helped you in any way that is awesome to hear uh you've obviously been killing it with everything that you've been doing for the site so happy to jump on here and uh do the weekly pod all at the ripe age of 15 as well astounding <laughs> so the first thing i wanted to talk about is i think from reading your stuff and knowing what i've written we fall on the same line i think very similar on fred van vliet and serge Ibaka. I want to talk about Ibaka first. And you and I have both written about the possibility of Ibaka taking some starch from Gasol, the fluidity of the center position. 
specifically in the Boston game, it looked like Nurse had trouble managing Ibaka's minutes down the stretch because mm. he did come off of the bench. How does Gasol's por- performance against the Bulls make you feel about that going forward? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely good to see Gasol uh, have the third quarter he did, and we saw all the things that make him so important to the Raptors team. The, the playmaking offensively, the defensive positioning, uh, the timing seemed to be there as well in terms of his shot contest and, understand, and sort of picking his spots in terms of when to hedge, when to just sort of drop uh, as the big. So um, that was encouraging to see. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think part of why the Raptors played so well at the center position, especially um, during their championship run was because you had two guys who were relatively fresh and uh, going into that final stretch, you know, Ibaka first was in that timeshare at the center position with Jonas Valanciunas. And then um, till Gasol really got acclimated, uh, they were exchanging starts as well. So I don't really see the harm in continuing that this season, especially with uh, the toll that Gasol's body has taken over the course of the regular season last year, then the playoffs, and then the world championships with Spain. So I think for me, more than anything, it's just a, it, an easy way to keep Gasol fresh. And um, when you've got Ibaka playing at the level that he's at, uh, I definitely think you want to maximize that as well. Well, when I was responding, or sorry, not responding, when I was writing last night, and trying to figure out how to tell the story of the game and how to talk about it. Gasol came up first because he had a great start to the game and he set the tone defensively, it seemed like. And since he played so much better than he did in the first two games, it seemed like that was the natural thing to talk about. But Ibaka, even though Gasol did ameliorate to a better version of himself, Ibaka was fantastic again and hasn't had a slip at all this year. How do you feel about how he's performed so far this year? I think he's really hit the ground running. I think you can see that his confidence is sky high. Um, and I feel like it's been that way ever since he's gone back to being a full-time center that can occupy the paint and has sort of the green light to shoot those mid-range twos. It doesn't seem like anyone on the roster <laughs> has the green light to shoot from there uh, the way he does. Um, but for good reason as well. He, he's great. Uh, in that pick and pop game, that pick and roll uh, with Kyle Lowry, that that was something that was that excelled all season, and that's probably another reason why I'd like to see him start every now and then uh, because of the chemistry he has with Kyle Lowry in the pick and roll. Um, and so, yeah, when I look at Ibaka's performances defensively, really just protecting the paint, offensively, you know, maybe here and there he's missed some catches, but you know early season that's going to happen with everyone um and i'm also encouraged by the reads he's been making offensively as well obviously he's uh, nowhere not quite the passer that marcus all is and that's going to happen uh but uh when you look at some of the reads he's made when when he's uh, dove to the basket and then been able to kick out to the corner or just make a quick swing um you know i think that's something that you want to continue to develop and have that chemistry with guys in the starting lineup. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's it's nice to see that not only is he making hard dives to the rim and it's paying off for him. We saw he had like four dunks against the Bulls last night, which was great, but that was also aided by his patience on the short roll, his ability to look to the corners and if the corners were covered, you know, take the one-on-one in the post 
And he's been really good at that even since, let's say, the third or second round of the playoffs. He's been really good surveying the court as the short roll man and even mm-hmm. better as just a hard, di- a hard dive guy to the rim. And that's his evolution as a Raptor has been really interesting from, and not to be too pedantic about Ibaka specifically, but what are the changes you see in his game from when he first arrived from the Terrence Ross trade to now? Because he's, they're both good players, but it seems like this version of Ibaka is really sharp, really, really good. Yeah, I, I think the things uh, that I've noticed is just the transition. So, you know, it, even if you go back to the OKC days when he came in, he came in as a shot blocker um, and someone who could finish at the rim. But then as he started to expand his range and the league has slowly or, you know, pretty rapidly now transitioned to the this pace and space era, um, I think he developed the mid-range and then he was slowly developing the three and then playing alongside Westbrook and Kevin Durant, he just kept moving further and further away from the basket. And so um, when he came over to the Raptors, I think, uh, you know, the team sort of viewed him as someone who could space the floor and have Jonas Valanciunas inside. And that I just don't think that was ever a role that was really suited to him. Um, and I think they thought that he was athletic enough to keep up with four so that, you know, Valanciunas could stay inside. And ever since he's been able to play uh, full-time center since the beginning of last year, I think he's just been, you know, a lot more comfortable. It's just his natural habitat. Um, and so I think that's been the biggest change for me. And astute point is definitely that he's been allowed to play within his skills that he developed while trying to become something he's not. So there was a time when with OKC and Westbrook, they're really asking him, like, take big steps away from the paint. And then with the Magic, it's pretty much just shoot the three. If you can, have a good eye for when to dive on the offensive glass and try and protect the paint on defense. And, like, that was fine, but they're asking so much of him. And when they were asking him to stretch and change, he was, you know, getting these skills and becoming better at them. And then the Raptors eventually realized that while he did have those skills, it wasn't to the degree that it completely changed his role. And now suddenly you move him back to a five, and suddenly he's a five who, for that position, can do a lot of things and is really excelling. And that was a huge part of the start to this season, huge part of pounding bench units in the finals against the Warriors. It was just, it's been cool. I really liked the Bacchus progression. Did you happen to watch his How Hungry Are You with Kevin Durant? Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. They, I mean, it seems like he's coming into his own with that too. It, uh, you know, maybe the production value wasn't quite there when it first started, but that's slowly come on, and he's looked a lot more natural on camera. And I think we're seeing him uh, be himself a lot more as well. Um, and that's something that's translated over to when he's uh, spoken with the media as well. He just seems like he's having a lot more fun and. You know, on some level, that translates to the court, too, when you're just feeling comfort, uh, comfortable in all the aspects of your life. When I, when I come to Toronto in March, hopefully I'm coming to do some games. I really am going to try so hard to speak only Spanish to Mark and Serge, and I hope it <laughs> goes well because, you know, it could, go, <laughs> it could take a left turn at any point in time. But what did you think about his behavior towards Kevin Durant. You know what I mean? Like, it seemed like 
he was such a gracious host to Kevin yeah. Durant, who's this very, it seems like he's a straight shooter because of he's kind of standoffish. And mm-hmm. Serge was just kind of, I don't know if you noticed that, he's like bouncing around and trying to make him feel so comfortable, even though it seemed like everything he asked was perfectly fine. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought uh, it just spoke to the friendship that they have. And when you think about your formative years, when you come into the league as a newcomer um, and you sh- sort of share those bonding years with someone that kind of never goes away, right? So uh, I think that sort of came through a little bit. And then in terms of, yeah, making KD feel comfortable, I thought even when they were talking trash about the finals, you know, you, you could see initially Ibaka was very much, you know, hey, there's no way you were beating us. There's no way you were beating us. But at the same time, he's trying to give KD credit for the player that he is and the type of impact that he can have. It's like, okay, yeah, if you guys got it to game seven then and you were playing, yeah, that would be difficult. You know, just sort of dangling a carrot uh, just to keep things smooth and keep, <laughs> keep him happy. Um, but yeah, I think uh, overall... Uh, that that episode um, just spoke to the the chemistry and the comfort that those two have with each other, um, that they can get on each other a little bit, that they can sort of totally be honest with each other. You know, Katie's comment about ask, asking Carrie Hilson out before Ibaka went went out with her that was wild. Um, that was <laughs> yeah. insane. Yeah. So um, yeah, they're obviously uh very comfortable when, with each other when they when they're together yeah that was i think that was like the a microcosm of kd that interview was standoffish when somebody's being like really nice but so honest in such a in a scenario where he didn't have to be that he brings so much like truth to <laughs> something that you didn't <laughs> even know was there and he just right. provides the world with such an intimate look into himself even yeah. though he does play so aloof sometimes, it's it was a really interesting interview for me. And yeah, you were completely right about Serge Ibaka submitting to when they're talking about the finals. He's like, ah, we wouldn't want. He's like, no, you wouldn't want. And Serge's like, okay, well, you know. And he's just doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Moving on to something that you know a lot about and that I don't know much about. I I grew up watching Raphael Nadal when I would see him playing, and I thought he was just the best. I know you're a tennis guy, and mm-hmm. I'm interested to ask you what you think the biggest similarities between tennis and basketball are. Huh. That is a great question. Um, biggest similarities, I would say, is, you know, every time you, say, for example, in tennis, you have those changeovers every couple of games, right? And mentally, I think players get to sit down and just sort of reset. And it's like whether you're down uh, three love in a tennis match, you know, four one, whatever it may be, you just get to sit there, be with your thoughts for a second and just sort of reset. And I think the same way in basketball, you know, whether it's a timeout, whether it's a stoppage in play, whatever it is, you're there with your teammates. And, you know, whether you're up five, down 15, that's that chance for you to just uh, reset and get your head back in the game, whatever you need in that moment. Um, so how seeing how players respond to those moments is something that I find really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that is one thing I definitely uh, would say the two sports have in common. Just to stretch this further, something that came to mind because of what you brought up, 
coming down from 4-1 or 3-love and being able to reset, assess, and then get yourself back into the game. The Raptors against the Bucks did a really good job with Kawhi in tow, of course, being able to be down by 10-15, right. take it in stride, come back. Who is the mm-hmm. tennis player that you've seen that is best at that skill? Uh, best at taking that skill, uh, I would say it's got to be Nadal, I think. He's, he's got the biggest heart in the game, hands down, for me. Um, I think when you look at his career, obviously he's never had too many moments where he's been down, but he's had uh, tough matches um, and he's had tough injuries. Uh, but, you know, when, when it comes to the court, he's able to put all that aside. I think, you know, even this U.S. Open final was a good example. You think about being up two sets to love. Daniel Medvedev comes back, ties it up. They go to a fifth set. And frankly, in that fifth set, it looked like Medvedev had all the momentum was going to win it. Um, But Nadal was able to pull through. So, um, yeah, I I would say Nadal, you know, just because of his heart, um, he's able to take any adversity and then just keep pushing through and battling through. I have a couple questions then. Mm -hmm. One is Nadal... I remember the story about his uncle telling him, go left-handed, you'll create yeah. more spin. And then the stat, something about 4,600 RPMs, whereas the regular is 26 RPMs, right. something like that. He gets a lot yeah. of spin on the ball. Is there a player in the NBA who was handcrafted and picked to be an all-star the same way that Nadal was in tennis? Like this, just this sheer amount of work ethic, you change hands type of thing, and you just create a superstar out of yourself. Is there a version of that in the NBA? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, maybe if Ben Simmons starts shooting free throws red-handed, <laughs> that might be interesting to see how that develops. No, but I, I think in terms of um, just taking raw athleticism and translating that into a sport and almost manufacturing yourself to be an all-star talent. Uh, I think DeMar DeRozan is an easy choice because I remember watching him when he first uh, came to Toronto and here was an extremely raw athlete who couldn't dribble, couldn't shoot, um, seemed to have a low basketball IQ and, you know, would very rarely make the right read. And he just continued to work and work and work and turned himself to a pretty good NBA player that's made multiple all-star appearances. I think that's a good one. And I when I was thinking of that question, I was like, Tristan Thompson changed his hand that he used to shoot with. But right. I don't think that's the comparison, though. I think DeMar Rosen <laughs> is a good one, especially since... The peak of DeMar DeRozan's game isn't his athleticism anymore. It is the discrete skills that he applied himself to and the fact that basically what he brings to the Spurs offense isn't even the mid-range shooting. It's his ability to break down the defense with his handle, his vision, and his IQ to get passes to the Spurs' great shooters, Bryn Forbes, Bellinelli, those types of guys, Bertans before he left. And to think that the role he plays in an offense now 
is completely different, an alien idea to what he was when he came into the league is, yeah, I think that makes that a great comparison. I definitely agree with that. And one more tennis-esque question. Yes. Reading the ball is so important in tennis. That first step you take mm-hmm. is is everything. Yeah. So is the offensive rebounding or rebounding trait in basketball, is that a good indicator of an NBA player that might be good at tennis? Huh. Um... Possibly. I think, yeah, uh, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Because, um, yeah, some some players in the NBA just have a certain nose for the ball and know where to go. Uh, and I think in the same way, you know, I think the great players sort of under, understand patterns and are able to read uh, which way a player is going to go with their forehand, with their backhand, with their serve um before they even hit it so i i think having that nose for the ball and rebounding uh yeah i'll give that to you samson it can can make you um just that quick that just that a little bit quicker to the ball when you're playing tennis perfect and do you play <laughs> tennis a lot i used to unfortunately i just don't have the time now um i i used to play a lot in like growing up uh high school i played for my high school and then Played in university too, because uh, that was kind of a sport that my dad played growing up. So I kind of followed his footsteps. But now I just don't have the time. If I have any free time, it usually goes to playing soccer. Yeah, well, soccer is great. That was you and I were both watching soccer before we started recording yeah. <laughs> today. What were yeah. you best at in tennis? What was I best at in tennis? Yeah. Um, I mean, I had a really good forehand. Uh, but I was really good at net. I think most people uh, who played me uh, would say that I had really good instincts at net and, and really good reflexes. Um, and I always felt like I could get to any ball. And I was, I, I was always a good mover. So even when people would try to lob me, I, I was able to uh, sort of run back and get it. So, um, yeah, I think my net played more than anything. Oh, cool. To get away from tennis, then, and thank you for in- <laughs> thank you for indulging me and teaching me things on that. I love it, man. Good. I love it, so I'm here for um, it. <laughs> OG Ananobi, I think, is the guy I want to talk about next. And yeah. he had a great game against the Bulls. He shot the ball well, and outside of shooting the ball well, I think there's a lot to talk about for him this season. I don't think anyone has ever had a complaint about his man-on-man defense. For the most right. part, it's been pretty superb since he's entered the league. It's his team defense that sometimes would falter. This year, that seems to be cleaned up a lot. He seems, mm. to be, he seems to fit really well into the back end and the front end of the Raptors' schemes defensively. What have you thought of that so far this year? Yeah, I think he just seems, again, uh, more confident overall. And I think when you look at the individual defense, you always felt like it was there. You always had the tools for that. And now... You know, I think he's had enough time uh, in the NBA. Uh, you know, I, I, a lot of times I think about Siakam when he first came into the league. And, you know, he had, here's a guy that obviously had all the physical tools. But when he first stepped into that starting lineup in his rookie season, he really looked um, out of place defensively because he just clearly didn't understand the schemes. And teams were able to take advantage of that and ca- catch him off guard pretty much all the time. So um, at least in the half court. So I feel like 
with OG, there, there was always going to be some of that uh, in terms of the learning curve. And now with the time that he's had, and uh, frankly, I think you can learn a lot uh, just from watching the game as well. And uh, last season, uh, unfortunately, he had a lot of time uh, to, to watch the game and learn that way. Uh, but the good thing is he, it, it looks like he's made the most of that time. And now I think uh, he's disciplined in terms of understanding where he needs to be uh, positionally uh, and following the team schemes. That's something that uh, multiple players on the Raptors have reiterated that nurses hell belt on, you know, he'll give you plenty of freedom offensively to make your reads and sort of go with the flow. But defensively, he wants you to stick to his principles and his schemes. And uh, I think, you know, OG's just extremely determined to show that uh, he can be a vital part of the Raptors' core going forward. He had a great game against the Bulls, and I think that did necessitate people to write about him in that game. And you did. The last <laughs> words of your article, a page turned and life lessons learned. It certainly looks that way. For the people who didn't have the privilege to read your article, how do you think you could best lead up to that finishing sentence on the podcast? Um, so I would say that, uh, you know, when you look at what happened last season and all the expectations that people placed on him, um, I think it was important not to get caught up in that and be like, okay, that's what people wanted out of me last year. I wasn't able to give it to them. I've got to be even better this year. No, I think he's just come in. So like he understands his role. Um, he's not trying to do too much. And, you know, frankly, he's just taken sort of everything again that he learned being off the court last year. And we're just seeing, I think, someone who's very mature uh, for a 22-year-old and translating that onto the court. Well, he's been not transcendent, but it's just so composed and sharp at every aspect of the game so far. Has one of those aspects stood out to you more than any other? Um, I think the individual defense has always stood out ever since he's come into the league. So I think I, I won't make the easy choice there. Um, but in terms of the discipline um, and understanding how Nick Nurse wants to play, I will go with uh, his two-point shooting where... He has literally not taken a shot uh, outside of the paint. And again, I think that speaks to a player that understands who he's on the floor with. And when you look at options like Siakam and Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet and Marc Gasol, you know, I, th I think uh, he understands what his role is and he accepts it. There's a lot of players, uh, especially at his age and, uh, with the expectations would say, hey, you know, I need to show I can do this and that. And, uh, you know, he's just taking the game as it comes to him. And if it if, if he can contribute 12 points a night, I mean, this is, you know, the first couple of seasons he was in single digits in terms of scoring. So if he's giving you 12 a night, 17 like he did against Chicago, I mean, that 17 would be incredible. But, yeah, 12, 12 a night, I think the Raptors would be pretty happy, especially if it comes on 40% three-point shooting. Well, I think you highlighting his shot selection is really astute as well because it's it's a huge part of his game and it's not there are players who provide ancillary scoring and that's fine but they don't provide it in a way that snuggles right next to their star players 
yeah. of like a Tim Hardaway Jr. His mm-hmm. type of ancillary scoring is going to be maybe at odds with what a Kyle Lowry would want to do or a Pascal Siakam would want to do. But OG Ananobi is just fitting right in next to what they need. It's sneaking along the baseline when Siakam sees that double coming from the baseline or even coming from, you know, the 45 and then spacing out when he knows he needs to space out. He's found all the right spots on offense so far. And to me, that's a huge progression. That's the first step before even making the shots is being in the right spots. Terrence Davis is a guy who's really good at that as well. But it's been pretty great to see OG doing that so far. I want to talk about Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry because I think that is the most interesting thing so far this year. I know they've been sharing the point guard duties at the very least. And I think Van Vliet, even though Lowry's usage percentage is a smidge higher than Van Vliet's, it seems like Van Vliet's spending a lot more time on ball. Mm -hmm. And that's my takeaway from it. And that's interesting. What do you think about them sharing the duties and what do you think it says about both of their games? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think uh, Van Vliet has been handling the ball uh, a lot more. Um, and I think the positive for me has just been the way he's been able to penetrate so far. I think, obviously, uh, I, the ankle may have been a bit of an issue when he went up against Boston. But uh, outside of that, I think he's looked pretty good in terms of getting to the rim, um, attracting the defense and kicking out or just hunting down his own scoring opportunities. And then he's obviously, you know, extended his range as well. You know, I think one of the things we saw in the Philadelphia series was um, teams, you know, that that kind of length, you know, just sort of takes him out of the game. And so now, you know, you, you see him, he's really not, uh, afraid to shoot from 30 feet and when you've got bigger defenders on you that can make a big difference so uh i think that's a big factor as well um and then for kyle i think it's a, it's a way of sort of um implementing some in-game load management if you will where you don't need to have him uh running the team and calling plays every single time where he can do uh some off-ball action, you know, we, we, we know he loves setting those off-ball screens and getting guys open, so uh, that's something that, you know, is, an, is another way for him to contribute to the offense. Um, that's not necessarily uh, a skill that Van Vliet ha- has yet. So, um, yeah, offensively, I think it, it works on a lot of levels. The question is defensively um, whether it's suited to defend pretty much every type of lineup if this is, you know, a starting lineup that you're going to see night in and night out. Yeah, well, I had the same thought as you. I know you wrote about maybe Van Vliet and Powell switching at times. I don't know if you thought about that going into the Bulls game, maybe that Powell would line up with Levine. That was what I thought as well. And Mm -hmm. what did you think about the job Van Vliet and Lowry did guarding the front court of the Bulls, which is a pretty big front, or sorry, not front court, the back court of the Bulls, which is a pretty big back court with Sadoransky and Levine? Yeah, I I think they did as good a job as you can hope for because, uh, but but the other thing I think I would keep in mind is as well is just generally, I think Sadoransky is not someone that you look at as sort of a volume outside threat. Uh, then you look at Zach Levine's game, you know, he, his shot spectrum isn't the greatest. Um, so, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't think he's, uh, 
comfortable with handling physicality. And so guys like Lowry and Van Vliet, you know, they're more than happy to get into someone's space. And so, you know, in those situations, I feel like Levine's the type to sort of back down a little bit. And kudos to Van Vliet and Lowry for being able to do that. Uh, so, um, you know, specifically against that but that backcourt, I, uh, I can see it working. Um, but again, against teams like Boston, maybe where they boast... Jalen Brown, Gordon Hayward, um, and Jason Tatum or Philadelphia and the length that they'll present. Uh, you know, I think that's where I think more than uh, staying committed to sort of a rotation, I think it's important to at least know what Nor- Norman Powell can give you in those types of situations and mm-hmm. whether or not uh, it's an option. Yeah. And I think it's players like and I know they were on the same team last year, but different teams now. D'Angelo Russell, Spencer Dinwiddie, players who are quite large for guards that also run the pick and roll and put their defender in jail in the pick and roll. I think those are the types of players who will really make it difficult to run the two-guard lineup to start things out because Van Vliet can be really physical when he's out beyond the three-point arc. He can really get into a guy. He can jump around screens. He can chase Levine around all game if he's running off flares or running elevator plays, anything really. But if it's going to be that one-on-one stuff where Russell or Dinwiddie or a player like that is going to stick their butt into Van Vliet, get them behind him, and then operate in two-on-ones going downhill all the time, I think that would be the matchups that the Raptors have to look out for. I guess we'll see how they do, but I think that's the the specific one that I would be worried about. What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think, you know, situationally, I think right now it looks like Nurse wants to give Van Vliet every opportunity to show that, you know, his game has grown and whatever, whatever work he's put in during the summer. Um whether it's improving his first step or whatever it may be, um, that he has a chance to show that he can go up against any backcourt. Um, but again, I think, uh, especially in this season where you're trying to figure out what's what, um, I think Norman Powell should be a part of that. And you know, I, I don't think you're going to find out too much if you if you keep playing him in this bench role um, where, let's face it, he's been stuck behind Damari Carroll and then OG Ananobi and now it looks like uh, Fred Van Vliet as well. Yeah. Well, that was what I wrote in the quick reaction last night was he's really high level for an eighth man. But yeah. that isn't that isn't what you want out of Norm Powell. If you're going to play him as the eighth man and you have him as that luxury, he'll probably do great as far as eighth man across the league. But you probably want him to be able to do more and to spot start and see what you have. I think you're absolutely correct there. The Raptors play the Magic on Monday, and mm-hmm. I don't want to dwell on it too long, but is there anything you're specifically excited for, the Isaac-Siakam rematch, anything like that? Yeah, Isaac-Siakam uh, should be fine. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see if there's any more miscommunications on a G- DJ Augustine pick and roll. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now that Kawhi's out of the way. Uh <laughs> But uh, <laughs> it was his fault. He was the one who did it. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. Who who would have thought we uh, we'd go from that to seeing them lift the Larry Ob? Yeah, you know, a couple months later. But uh, yeah, I think 
Uh, as far as the Magic are concerned, I, I, I watched uh, some of that uh, game against the Hawks. And I honestly, I'm, I'm just really glad to see Markel Fultz uh, back on the court. Um, yeah, and it just looks like he's happy and he's confident. You know, it, it, I, from what I saw, there, there were a couple of threes that he attempted. One went down. Another one was um, a little bit he long. Hit two. He hit oh, two he, he, he had another one, too? Okay, yeah. okay. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm just happy that, you know, it looks like he's back on track to just playing the game and, you know, trying to be the best player he can be. This, this goes back some time for people who listen to this podcast since I've jumped on as host, but I have been sneaking Markel Fultz into far too many Raptors-esque <laughs> podcasts. It's, it's kind of criminal, but I, God, I love him and I'm so happy to see him doing well. I'm glad you brought him up because... I'm really excited to watch him play against the Raptors. Also, Evan Fournier's been pretty good so far this year. The the Aaron Gordon of it all remains kind of intriguing because it seems like he could be an all-NBA player someday, but it's not as close as one would think, given his his shooting ability and his physical tools. And Isaac and uh, Siakam is one of my favorite matchups to watch league-wide. It should be really, really fun. Yeah, I mean, Isaac had, I think, four blocks the other night, right? So um, I, I, I think maybe uh, there was some hope that he'd elevate his scoring a little bit. But in terms of scoring, I think the disappointment uh, so far has to be with Aaron Gordon. I mean, it's only a couple of games, but um, I'm just looking now. Nine points, 10 points, averaged you know, 16, 17 the last two seasons. So um, he's got to get going for sure. Uh, you know, the same way you see some of the, you know, Siakam, for example, take that next step. I think he's probably the biggest name that Orlando keep waiting on to take that next step and um, become an all-star player or whatever it may be. And he's yet to truly make that leap. Yeah, I think, well, that's a good point is that Gordon, it seemed like he was the guy, the next guy to take that leap, especially for that team. Yeah, but he still can he can go through phases of game where he's invisible. Mm-hmm. Siakam last year did have that as well, but still overall for the amounts of money he was getting paid, the role he was put in was still fantastic all the time. He didn't even have as prominent a role as Gordon did within the Magic team right. relative to the Raptors team. But this year they're both in huge roles. The difference is Siakam refuses to be invisible at any point in time. We've seen he's not afraid to put a ridiculous amount of shots up, and he'll just keep going, <laughs> going, going, going. And I think that's great. That's something you want in a star player because it's something that is part of being a star player. And not only has he been putting the shots up, but he's also been making a great deal of them and from beyond the arc and just growing and changing and being fantastic. It's been it's been wonderful to watch. So that is my Siakam is better than Gordon take, which is not <laughs> much of a stretch at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the biggest thing with Siakam is seeing uh, some of the mid-range shots that he's making, and then obviously the biggest thing is the above-the-break threes. I mean, that's a development that is going to pretty much leave defenders with no option left to go to, because... Uh, you know, when, once he gets into that face-up game in the mid-range, once he gets to those post-up opportunities or his left block, the right block, you know, he's going to give you that little uh, feint and then, you know, the spin and 
probably finish right over you. So uh, seems like all the tools are coming along in the bag pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, it's crazy to see development, you know, especially when you think about where he was in that rookie season um, and then having to go down to the G League to be where he is now, looking very much like an all-NBA player. Um, you know, might be the third team, but who, who cares? Like, that, that's no one, that's nothing, that's something that no one envisioned uh, yeah. when he came to the league. Well, I think it was Zach Lowe who said he has an opportunity for all-star, all-NBA, and all-defense. And I think that's probably well within reach, especially right. looking at how he's playing now. And yeah, I like that you brought up the above-the-break three because you can't play the DeMar DeRozan playoff defense on him. You can't just drop below, yeah. get everybody inside the paint, and then ask him to make really, really great reads to the opposite corner, make tough passes like that. If Siakam is just going to come around the screen pull up from three and hit a decent amount, that's what do you do? Because not only is he one of the craftiest players as far as finishing and footwork when he's going downhill, he's also one of the fastest players in the league. And he's running the pick and roll as a ball handler, as a four. What yeah. do you do? You have no recourse to stop that, really. It's just kind of hope he misses, hope the variance falls in your favor, that type of thing. It's Yeah, it's been great to watch. We are truly spoiled being able to watch. Pascal Siakam this year. No, the, the, the other thing I was going to touch on is, I mean, on some level, it's almost like he's redefined how we think of development because, you know, when you think about the DeRozan years, every year he came back better um, and he'd improve one aspect of his game. And you're like, yeah, that's really cool to see. You know, every year this guy comes back better, finds something in his game to improve upon. Um, but Siakam, it's like, you know, he goes into each summer and it's like, okay, I need to get better at mid-range. I need to get better at the above the break three. I need to get better at, uh, you know, ball handling. And he's doing multiple things at the same time. And then it seems like he gets better as the season progresses as well. So um, definitely don't want to set that as the standard for everyone else to follow. Uh, but it's incredible to think that someone can actually do that. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, don't set that as the standard. But it's hard not to kind of squint your eyes at other people not making progressions when Siakam <laughs> is coasting through the NBA. He's like, oh, yeah, so they told me I need to do this. So I did it. And players who <laughs> yeah. are able to do that, I bet the other players are just like, screw you, man. Like, what the hell? <laughs> because there's guys like Stanley Johnson, for example, who has taken more, like his highest percentage of field goal attempts comes from the three-point line. He takes a higher yep. percentage of threes than any other shot at the rim, mid-range, close shots, whatever, his whole career. He's been trying so damn hard to work the three into his bag, and it's just not happening. And so for a guy like that who's clearly one aspect of his game, he's hammering away at it and can't get it. And Pascal Siakam, what, gets a two-month break? Suddenly it's in his bag? He's probably like, what the hell, man? This isn't fair. And yeah, that's interesting to see. Different strokes for different folks, I suppose. It's a, a mad, mad world out there. Yeah. I, I, thought, you you gonna, I, thought, I thought you were going to throw a Samson folk pun in there, too. But. Oh, yeah, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, uh, are you ready for the Twitter questions? Yeah, absolutely. That's All good. right. Listener, you're about to hear an ad. And after that, you'll be joined by me 
and Vivek once again. Here's the scenario. You're injured in a collision and your insurance company is denying your claim. It happens far too often. If it happens to you, call me, Brian Goldfinger of Goldfinger Personal Injury Law. My team and I work for people just like you. We don't accept cases on behalf of insurance companies, so you and your family can make sure that you're in good hands. Visit goldfingerlaw.com and get us working for you. Welcome back, listener. You are listening to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm still your host, Samson Folk, and still joined by Vivek Jacob. How are you doing, man? Still feeling great? Of course, man. I'm here with you. Oh. Big, uh, our big uh, <laughs> Raptors Republic podcast star. Wow. Thank uh, you. <laughs> taking I'm over the reins from uh, William Liu extremely well, man. So thank you. Glad to be a part of this. It's big shoes to fill, especially. So I mean, hey. There's, there's no matching the head, so I think <laughs> a better shot with the shoes. Yeah, big hat to fill, definitely. All right, the first question from Az at A-A-Z-I-H-1. Rank nurse as a coach, top five, question mark. What do you think, Vivek? Wow. Uh, so off the top of my head, you know, I'm – I'm going to have Greg Popovich at the top of the list till he's gone. Um, Eric Spolstra's got to be on that list. Rick Carlisle's got to be on that list. Who else are we looking at? Those are the main three that come to mind for me. Like yeah, right exactly. Those yeah, are the guys. So, so, yeah, I mean, when you think of it like that, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't want to give him, you know, top five credentials after just one season. Um, there's still a long way to go, but I mean, I, I definitely think he's in the top ten. Uh, you, when you would think of other names, I mean, I, I think, think Brad Kurt? Stevens has shown a weakness with uh, you know managing star players, mm-hmm. so that's something that he'll have to improve on. Um, Steve Kerr is, I think, a very good coach. Um, I think he deserves to be in the top five. Right now, when you look at the uh, the names in the league right now, so yeah, he he's probably fourth on the list uh, after the three that I mentioned. Because yeah, who else? Who else really deserves to be up there? I mean, I I, I think Coach Bud is a bit overrated. Um, I think he's a great regular season coach. I think he's great at implementing a system. Um, but I don't know how many seasons in a row now. Well, not in a row, but how many years of his coaching career now that he's lost four straight playoff mm-hmm. games. So that inability inability to adjust, I think, is a big knock. Um, I think Nate McMillan is a great coach. Yeah. Uh, so he would definitely be on my list. Terry Stotts is very good. Um, mm, Stotts is a good one, yeah. Yeah, so so yeah, I think Nurse needs a bit more time. Um, at least my, in my personal opinion, I, 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 I like to make, you know, whether it's player or coach, earn it. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, just put someone there based off one season. So with more time, um, he could definitely be there. Uh, 
but yeah, the guys I've named so far, those are probably my favorite coaches in the in the league. Uh, I, I you know I, I should probably throw uh, Quinn Snyder and Michael Malone into the list too because mm-hmm. I think those two do a great job as well. Malone was the only guy who ever got the best out of Demarcus Cousins, which that mm-hmm. was something. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then got fired for seemingly no reason with the Kings. Yeah. Yeah. What a world. Um, yeah, yeah I, I liked a lot of the coaches you named there. I think the, the tough question is ranking Nurse. Obviously, I, guys like Casey, Stotts, Budenholzer, guys who have coached for a very long time, who have really yeah. good track records in the regular season. But specifically, Budenholzer, in the pressure cooker of the playoffs, definitely got outcoached by Nick Nurse. And even yeah. in the finals, Steve Kerr might have gotten outcoached as well. So are you right. reaching for the ceiling when you're ranking these guys, right? Or are you looking at the overall resume and saying, well, Nick Nurse has only coached one year. And if you'd right. asked if Ty Lue was a top five coach after he won, because he did make good coaching decisions in the 2016 yeah. finals, I think yeah. it wouldn't, I wouldn't have put him as a top five coach. And I think it's tough right. to put nurse there now after one season hopefully though um listener and, and aziz who asked i think he'll get there if he coaches for a while yeah and I know, i'm realizing we didn't even mention mike d'antoni and doc rivers right oh <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah i just pulled up uh the list of teams in the league and yeah uh we didn't mention those two we didn't mention alvin gentry so there, there's a lot of really good coaches in the league right now um so, yeah, I think Nurse needs just a slightly bigger sample size before we put him in the top five. Yeah, especially if Kawhi wins the title again this year, I think that does take away from Nurse as well, even if it maybe shouldn't. Just in the I think way that's that a fair the public, argument. Yeah, if the, I think the way that the public would view it would be like, ah, uh, you know, it, it doesn't count for as much because now we see that Kawhi just wins everywhere he goes. Nurse was just along for the ride type of thing, which... Who knows? Maybe that's and then start saying the same thing about Doc Rivers as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that's that's an age old knock that coaches get, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, you you have fans that uh, give Phil Jackson a knock saying that, oh, he had MJ and Scotty and then he had Kobe and Shaq. And uh, you, you know, as much as we, we've seen Greg Popovich do great things, he also had. <laughs> You know, David Robinson and Tim Duncan and Mono Ginobili and Tony Parker. So, uh, yeah, it's always that age-old debate of how much does a player bring to the table, how much does a coach bring to the table. So um, you got to find that sort of perfect marriage. That That's what coaches have to create because, let's face it, egos can really get in the way. Um, and every, every time uh, Nurse was faced with a challenge last year, he was able to come up big, um, whether it was a boxing one, whether it was... Uh, keeping his faith in Gasol uh, in the starting lineup after going down 0-2, whether it was keeping and even keeping his faith with uh, Van Vliet after the Philadelphia series. Well, that's I think this isn't a unique opinion of mine at all. But coaches, by far, the public, the viewing public has no idea how to rate them or to want to even begin talking about their impact on a team. And I think even right. journalists, writers. We, we have no idea really either. A better mm-hmm. idea maybe because like you, you get to go see the day-to-day. You talk to Nick Nurse from time to time and you talk to the players about him. You have a better insight, but still like the way coaches are viewed, I think is so far on 
either side of the spectrum. There's some people who are like, the coach makes everything. The players are just, they're like, it's kind of like the foot soldier thing and the, the coach is the sergeant. Some people have that kind of archaic view. And then yeah. other people are like, the coach literally does nothing. The players just do everything. And then that probably is too far the other way. And it's like, where does it fall? And really, I have no idea. I don't even, I think some organizations don't even have a clue. It is such a nebulous thing to try and dissect. Yeah, and I, th- I think you make a great point because I think a perfect example of that is how people viewed Eric Spolstra after year, that year one with the Heatles versus the next year when they won the championship, right? And when you think about uh, the Heat falling short to Dallas, there was a lot of heat that, I mean, no pun intended, that Eric Spolstra <laughs> took, uh, that Eric Spolstra had to take, right? And, um, you know, why didn't he have LeBron more involved? And how, how can you not figure out a way with that trio uh, of players? And um, and then you look at what the Heat did the next three years. I mean, obviously they lost to the Spurs in that last go-around in the finals. But um, even after that, you look at his, his teams are always in the conversation as a top 10 defensive team. They figure to be possibly a top five defensive team this year. And I think they're going to be a really tough out uh, mm-hmm. in the playoffs. It's like just looking at the matchups, you know, they match up well pretty much against any, any team, um, especially, you know, if, if Jimmy Butler is at his best. Yeah, I watched Eric Spolster drop way too many creative sets for Wayne Ellington corner threes to ever doubt his <laughs> ability as a coach. He takes yeah. like a fringe roster player like Ellington, and then suddenly Ellington becomes one of the premier spot-up shooters in the league. And not to take anything away from Ellington, he can shoot the damn ball, of course. But right. playing with the Heat, some of the shots that they created for him, and not even because like Goran Dragic was a genius on ball at times. It was just like some of the sets that were run in that Heat offense were absurd. And it, it mm. would be like Nurse, who had a great set at the end of the Boston game, the one where Van Vliet faded to the corner, Lowry drove in from the right side and floated it back to him. Like When you see sets like that in action, you know, okay, this is one glaring imprint that a coach had on the game. And that's yeah. about as close as we get to viewing the coach's value, I think. But yeah. It's it's interesting, man. But Spostra is definitely he's he's a great coach. Yeah, and you know, again to add to your point, I, I feel like that's where analytics has almost given great X's and O's coaches a bit of a hack, where it's like, okay, we don't have superstar talent, but I can diagram enough plays to get us these paint twos and corner threes, um, and just threes in general. Um, to get us through the regular season. Now, obviously in the playoffs when uh, superstars make all the difference in the world because they can break any system. Um, and, you know, when scouting reports are out there for you to read into all those plays, you need those players to make the difference. But uh, I think in the regular season, uh, you, you really have these great X's and O's coaches that are able to uh, get, you know, mediocre rosters to level up because they're able to have maybe a more sustainable offense. Yeah. I agree. The uh, second Twitter question from Chris Bridgen, at Chris P. Bridgen. Did Thomas do enough against Chicago to get Johnson's minutes? Um, you know, I think with Thomas, it's more a size issue, a defensive issue. Um, because in a perfect world, if you could just have Matt Thomas uh, on offense for every play and then 
have, you know, whether it's Stanley Johnson or Rondé or uh, whoever defensively, that's probably what Nick Nurse will go with. But um, I think when you look at uh, the matchup against the Bulls, there's probably enough opportunity where you can hide a guy like Matt Thomas uh, defensively. And I, I mean, that's not to criticize what he did defensively in this in the game. I thought he was um, did just about enough. Uh, he was adequate to the point where uh, other guys could rally around him. And, uh, you know, I thought that play where uh, I think it was Kobe White who came down at him in transition and he was able to yeah. just sort of slow him down just enough to where OG could come over and block the shot. And that's pretty much all you can ask for from Matt Thomas. Maybe just hold your own to where other guys can uh, just help you hide. Yeah. Well, to hear the Raptors public comment section tell it, he's a defensive player of the year nominee by now and should be starting. <laughs> at, <laughs> you know, it's uh, he. I thought he did a for his physical profile. I thought he yeah. did a great job on defense last night. His compete level is good. And on offense, all you want from a shooter is for them to find the soft spots in the defense. And uh, even though they ran that flare screen for him, he came off it hard. The route he took, it tricked Zach Levine. He got a wide open three. And when Siakam was working down on the left block, he faded into the right corner and he found the soft spot. He hit his three from there. And that's what else do you want from a shooter, right? Find the soft spots, hit your shots. Has he overtaken Johnson? I mean, I wrote a feature about Stanley Johnson before this year started, and it was more pessimistic than I would have liked because I watched too much of his film and saw too little that was good. So I have not been big on Stanley at all. Right, and it's I I don't think Stanley Johnson should really be getting any minutes at all, and I might be in the fringe when I think that, but that's I've watched a lot of his game, and I think he's just not an NBA player right now. Maybe he gets there, maybe he doesn't, but I would I would have a mix of Hollis Jefferson, Thomas Davis, much rather than have Stanley Johnson out there. But has he overtaken? In Nick Nurse's eyes, probably not. I think Stanley Johnson's still going to get opportunities. He's an athletic specimen, and all he needs to do is for something to click at some point, and suddenly he becomes, you know, a good eighth man or a good ninth man. So I don't think he's overtaken Stanley Johnson's minutes just yet. But he definitely has inserted himself as a, a valuable specialist, which is which is great. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, with Stanley, it's just. He needs to take baby steps offensively. I, I actually thought he started out defensively fine. And I think offensively, you know, uh, the first play he was in the game, he, he, set, uh, he set an off-ball screen, which freed up, uh, I think, Norman Powell for a corner three. And then he was able to hustle for an offensive rebound uh, and had the awareness to get the shot up before the shot clock expired. And then it was downhill from there. I mean, become, I would say become a single threat uh, offensively before trying to be a triple threat. And, uh, you know, it really looks like he can't dribble, he can't shoot. So just every time you get it, just just, just get it back. Just play hot potato and get it back to someone else and set a screen um, and just try to do more off the ball where you're getting other guys open and just completely forget about your own offense for now. I know that's probably not a great thing to say for his confidence, but... Um, in terms of looking to earn minutes, I think that's the way for him to do it. No, I think that's that's a really concise way of putting it is when you said 
become a single threat before you become a triple threat. That's succinct, and that works for Stanley Johnson on a lot of levels, I think. And that's yeah. probably the way forward for him. The last Twitter question from Candace Taub, at Candace Taub, that's T-A-U-B-E. Has your opinion of any of the guys changed after these first three games? Uh, has my opinion on any of the guys changed after the first three games? Uh, I think my opinion has changed on Van Vliet a little in terms of I was very sort of can he really be um, a productive NBA starter? And, you know, I thought that question marks about his size and whatnot on just like a night to night basis. But I think the big thing, if he can continue to uh, provide dribble penetration and get by his men, I think that's something he really struggled with last year. So if he can continue to do that, then I think he becomes a very capable NBA starter Um, and, you know, is going to be asking for a pretty sizable bag (laughs) this upcoming summer. What's Yakum, you know, I, I think, you know, he was always going to be handed the keys to the offense and we were going to see whether he can really be that, you know, that top tier type uh, guy in the NBA. And, you know, he he's showing that he possibly can get there. So um, it was, I, w- I wouldn't say that is surprising to see. It was just more, you know, curiosity. And you always thought it was a possibility. I, I wouldn't say, I ruled out anything to, that suggested that Siakam could be a superstar. Um, with, with Van Vliet, maybe um, I did think maybe his ceiling was sort of, you know, a spot starter and uh, a really key, you know, sixth, seventh man type guy. I think that you and I were sitting in the same place with regards to Van Vliet. This was a conversation I had on the weekly podcast last week with Blake where we were discussing about how the pick and roll acumen and the finishing inside has to hit another level for him to become the heir apparent to Kyle Lowry's, you know, lead guard. And mm-hmm. I think the Pelicans game was like, wow, holy smokes. I guess yeah. he shoots seven yeah. of he shot seven of eleven in the paint and he did a really good job of pacing and warding off the help defense. I was like, wow. But then the Celtics game and also the game against the Bulls. A lot more difficulty finishing inside, so it's like okay, maybe that was just like a flash in the pan. But the pick and roll acumen has been steady, as far as I'm concerned, with how he's creating his work on ball has been diligent, and yeah, he's been he's been much better than I thought he would be. And of course, he's breathing fire from downtown because I think he's genuinely one of the best shooters in the league. And as long as he gets to work off of Kyle Lowry and Kyle Lowry off of him, I think there's room for him in the starting lineup. Like we talked about earlier on in the podcast, though, you still want to give Norm Powell opportunities because there's a lot of ceiling there for him to to punch through as well. But Van Vliet has definitely surprised me, not in a way that's totally shocking, but he has has not affirmed any of the detractors that I thought were there. He's he's right. done a really really good job. Yeah, I know. I, I think uh, you you hit the nail on the head there. Um, all the sort of perceived slights that you might have at his game really just don't appear to be there. I think even the Boston game was more indicative of maybe the ankle slowing him down more than anything. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It was, yeah, he's done a great job so far. There's no reason to doubt anything he's doing because he's been 
pretty much his best self in nearly every facet of the game so far and seemingly better than his best in a lot of others. He's been he's been exactly the player to to get excited about and especially alongside Siakam, I think you said that OG Ananobi would be joining them as the head of the snake and I think that's a good way to put it and an exciting way to put it for the future of the Raptors as well. So that's that's how Van Vliet has made me feel, more optimistic for him going forward where I was very optimistic about him as a player, maybe a little bit pessimistic about how he fits in as a, you know, a really good starter going forward. He's maybe flipping the page on that, making me change my mind because he's been so damn good. Mm-hmm. Well, Vivek, I think that's, uh, I think that's about it. Is there anything you want to plug or tell the people about before we get out of here? Oh, no, you can catch my usual work at uh, Yahoo Sports Canada. Uh, obviously, miss uh, everyone at Raptor Republic, and but you know I'm glad to see <laughs> that the train is just uh, chugging along uh, extremely smoothly. Uh, there were some <laughs> big departures last year, but yeah, it, it's awesome to see everyone just step up their game and uh, really take it to another level. So uh, keep doing your thing. Um, you're doing a great job. Um, so is Lois. So is Anthony. So is everyone. Um, so yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at VivekMJacob. And yeah, to oh. the next Raps game. <laughs> I have one more question, and it'll just be a quick one. Have yeah. you seen hey, my man. joint article with Lewis, the Black Box Report? No, I haven't. I missed okay. that one. I was going to ask if you thought it was a good title, but it's a, it's a weekly column we do together now. But I we were kind of hesitant on the title, so I was just wondering. But that's... Uh, that's that's totally fine. I'm going to Google it right now. So, <laughs> um, For you, listener, like Vivek said, you can find him on Twitter at Vivek M. Jacob. And you can read all of his stuff at Yahoo Sports Canada. He's doing terrific work over there. For me, you can just stay tuned on Raptors Republic. I'm doing a lot of stuff over there all the time. So chances are if you're reading something or listening to something, it could it could be from me. So hopefully you're enjoying all that stuff. Vivek, thank you very much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, to you, listener, whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at myhealthpolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started at MyHealthPolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for, and done. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com and done. Switched to a better plan. And Michael. I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face, and done. 
Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to compare top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.